Blog Talk Radio. edition. Today is going to be October the 7th. I almost forgot the date. Um, October the 7th, 2017. I'm your host, John Robb. I want to thank you for listening. However, wherever, whenever you listen to the show, it's always great to have you with us. Two hours today packed. We're going to kick off the first hour with um, author D.P. Lyle and his and the anthology that he wrote with, his, uh, with the authors Maddie Margarita, Stephen Jackson, and of course others in the book, but Maddie and Stephen are going to be joining uh, Doug with him on the show, and then we're going to switch it over to Michael Brandon, uh, Michael Brandman, and then Tasha Alexander is going to be finishing it up, talking about her latest Lady Emily book. So we got a lot of stuff to be able to cover today, and in two hours is going to be a very good show. Uh, I want to remind you all too that all of our shows here are brought to you by Kensington Books. So please make sure you visit KensingtonBooks.com for more information on all of their authors and everything that they have going on. If you have any questions about the magazine, of course, you can always email editor at suspensemagazine.com. The latest issue has been out for a couple weeks now, or for a little over a month. Uh, So you want to make sure that you go ahead and get that. If you have any questions, of course, you can always email us anything about the show at radio at suspensemagazine.com. And that's all the stuff i got to go over. So let's start it off here, and let's get them on. Um, Again, the name of the anthology is called It's All in the Story. And it came together from the uh, Southern California Writers Association, which these authors are all members of. So without any further ado, let's welcome all, all to the show here. So Doug, Maddie, Stephen, how you all doing? Welcome here. Great. Thanks, John. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. So when I, it's great to have all three of you on and to be able to talk about this. Again, it's called It's All in the Story. The book comes out October 21st. So if you're listening to the show now, kind of marked on your calendar, October 21st, two weeks, but the book's going to be out. Uh, you can find it wherever you buy books, go to Amazon, pick it up. Let's kind of get into the creation of kind of how this got started through the SCWA and kind of how you guys got involved um, with the creation of this book. I'll, I'll go with Doug first, and then we can go to Maddie and Steven, so we can kind of keep it. So, Doug, go ahead. Well, the SCWA is a uh, local um, Orange County, Southern California Writers Association that has, uh, I think, about 160-something members now, and it's been going on for quite some time, and you know, they do a lot of educational programs and things like this. And then I think Stephen and Maddie and some of the others got together and decided, you know, why don't we, why don't we put together an anthology of short stories that features, you know, our writers and uh, and others, and 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 see if we can make this this dream come true. So I think Stephen and Maddie can talk better about the process of how I was brought in later after the, after the process was underway and asked to be editor of it. But um, why don't you guys talk about the, the nuts and bolts of how this came about? Steve, you want to take that? 
Um, sure. Well, so the SCWA, as as Doug mentioned, has been around um, like 30 years or or more, maybe I don't know, but it's it's really a I view it as a per- perpetual writers conference where every month, a t- our you know top flight speaker comes in and provides education to the group on craft or business, any aspect of uh, the writing profession, and we we for a couple of years we were considering the possibility of going into publishing and uh, you know that's a big deal and and you have to have a lot of money in your war chest and you have to have a lot of resources and professional uh, folks uh, available and and a lot of Prozac you have to have a lot of Prozac too (laughs) yeah you gotta have a lot of that too Uh, Jameson (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and um, so about a year ago we decided to do it if we could if we could meet a couple of conditions and the 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 top the number one condition was finding a big name editor that could influence you know pr- provide oomph to the to the project and so we uh we immediately thought of Doug and uh, he graciously accepted and from there we just took off yeah and i i think the um other thing that we were um really focused on was finding um a theme that people could relate to that would be um, accessible to and from a large group of people um, and putting together an outreach where we not only included the writers from SCWA, but actually opened it to anyone who was interested in submitting. Um, Because our goal was to put together um, a book that presented a broad spectrum of uniquely Californian short fiction so we wanted to see if we could draw from all over California. So we went to Sisters in Crime. We went to OC Writers. We used our personal outreach just to bring in as many submissions as possible. And I think we were really successful putting together a really um, great collection of stories that are uniquely California in their weirdness and in their uniqueness and in their point of view, which is great. So I think we did what we set out to do. And, and the stories really are, are obviously California-based, but, I mean, boy, they, they really cover a lot about the culture and the history of, uh, of, of us crazy folks out here on the left coast. <laughs> you know, we, we, we had stories that took place, uh, you know, around the mission in San Juan Capistrano in the early 1800s, and we had gold rush period stories. We had modern-day stories that uh, 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 in California uh, – we had characters of all types. Uh, it, it really was an amazing collection. When when I started reading through all the stories, it was like, wow, there's so many talented people around here. It's scary. Um, it, 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 it is, you know. And I, I I never was a short story writer to the last couple of years, and I didn't read much of them. But I've started mm-hmm. reading them a lot more in the last couple of years. I went back to Hemingway, and then that kind of lit the spark. And so when these stories came in, and he started look at them, it was like. Boy, there's some talented people out there in the world. And and so now, when so you mentioned the theme was basically, of course, you know, the California area is what you wanted to do, and you've done many different time periods. So the only thing that you guys really had to go on was, hey, write about California, any kind of history. You didn't really, did you really didn't care about the genre, whether or not there was a little bit maybe more romance or more thrill or more mystery or suspense, as long as it was just California, um, that was what you were kind of looking for. I think so. Uh, you know, it, almost anything. So we've got everything from science fiction, 
uh, oh wow, to, yeah, to horror, to uh, so to speak, to to almost uh, romance, and uh, though not not classically that, but uh, to uh, character studies, to to crime fiction. I mean, it really runs the gambit. There's there's tons of different stories in there. And so and let me have, one... so, so Maddie and Steven, so you guys have stories. You guys each have a couple stories in in in, uh, in the book here. So uh, I'll go to you, Maddie, first. So when when you were wanted to become a pro, you know part of this project, and you kind of heard, hey, this is California. This is where I'm gonna you know gonna theme about California stuff. Did you kind of want to get out of your comfort zone, maybe, of the genre that you were kind of writing in, and maybe explore yourself? more uh, as an author to kind of, you know, maybe expand into something that you didn't really know about in a short story was kind of a good way to dip your foot in the, in, you know, in the water and kind of see how, as an author, you kind of, um, you know, were able to kind of do that and, and do a different maybe genre. You know, John, I'm thinking about putting a piece of black tape over my webcam because <laughs> that's exactly what I did. Um, and um, Earth Angel was um, actually adapted from um, a novel that I'm writing now, um, and it it did force me to deal with the deadline and crystallize exactly uh, where I was going. So actually writing the short story helped me clarify my path on the novel, more so than just sitting there staring at the computer screen. So that was great. And then on... Um, Verity's Truth, um, you know, I was sort of strategic about this. I knew that our process was a double blind. So we had people submit, writers submit to a um, submissions editor who stripped the names off all the stories. And then those stories went to our editorial board. So they got those stories um, blind. And then they rated them and took their names off of them and set them to one person. So only one person saw the names, then one person saw um, how the editorial committee ranked the stories. Um, and so I, I knew that that um, would really t take down all the boundaries of platforms and things like that that traditional publishers tend to look at. So my approach was um, to submit two stories. Uh, one was Earth Angel from the novel, and the other was to try um, something a little more literary, a little darker, um, which, you know, was a serial murder set in the 1800s in a um, paranormal bar called The Hair of the Dog. So, oh, uh, yeah, so it was really, it was fun and it was different and it did force me outside of my comfort zone. And writing short stories is different. You know, you have to be efficient and economical and to the point, which, you know, based on my answer, you may see sometimes it's a struggle for me. So, <laughs> Stephen, what about you? Well, I um, my stories are are based on my travels around the state. When I travel around the state, I you know I observe things, and I'm always thinking, wow, what what if that? Um, so I have a story called Full Service, and uh, I don't know if you most people that live in Southern California have taken the drive from Los Angeles to Las Vegas at some point in their life, and. Um, when right. you pass the when you pass the town um, of Baker and you go up this hill, there's there's a there's a there's an exit off Highway 15, and the only thing on that exit is this old gas station, all by itself, 
mm-hmm. you know. And and I, I as I was driving by, I thought to myself, well, how on earth do those people stay in business? And um, and so I, my imagination took me to write the story full service. Um, and I was at uh, when I was at Hearst Castle, and people in the tour were talking about how they, you know, their rumors that the place was haunted. And I thought to myself, well, what if they're not haunted by ghosts? What if it's something else? And so I, I wrote, um, I wrote, life dies and then you suck, and um, which is a very different story, uh, kind of story, but it was great fun, uh, really great fun, and. <laughs> I normally write. Uh, I, I know. I mean, I, I normally write novels. I write thriller novels or horror novels. Um, but I've also had five stage plays produced and short short plays. And it turns out short plays are are not, you know, in terms of length, are pretty similar to the kinds of short stories we were looking for. We were looking for stories that were uh, in the range of about fifteen hundred to three thousand words, you know, plus or minus some, and. Um, it turns out these stage plays actually gave me the I think doing the stage plays gave me the confidence well yeah I I could probably write a short story why not sure yeah i mean and and that's the and that's the exciting part is when you go ahead and and you know like like Maddie like you said like you you did something a little different you kind of got outside i mean it's it's easy for you know authors to kind of write the same thing the same thing the same thing but then once you are able to explore yourself and see other things, I think short stories are a great way to do that and kind of figure out, you know, which direction maybe you want to go on your on your next book or, or, or something to that effect. So then, Doug, when you started reading these stories and you started going in, did you kind of get the itch? Because, you know, you're not a short story writer. I mean, everything that you've always written has always been, uh, you know, novels. I mean, you might have written a couple here or there, but did, did, it, did it kind of give you an itch? Did it kind of give you an idea of, you know, maybe you wanting to expand yourself a little bit, maybe in, in your novel writing, or, or get the itch to start doing some short stories. Oh, sure, and on many levels. You know, I, I've only uh, prior to this had only had one short story published. It was in an international thriller writer's uh, called Love Is Murder anthology, and I was shocked that they accepted it. But because I, this is the first <laughs> short story I'd ever written, and I just I did it on a lark over a weekend, and, and it actually turned out, and that book that story actually turned into a novel. But um, so when this came along, I thought, well, you know, it, I'm flattered. I'm, I mean, I'm amazed they asked me to be the editor of it, and I was very flattered and accepted immediately. And then I thought, uh-oh, now I've got to write a story. <laughs> yeah. And so I sat down again over a weekend and, and it basically started with just a scene. And, you know, what if this person's out on uh, out on a kayak in uh, Newport Harbor and they come across something they shouldn't have, and what happens after that? And that's how most stories start. Um, but yes, it, it, even though the, the two short stories I've had published are, are uh, will now have published is uh, are both crime fiction, and that's kind of the, the 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 genre I write in. But but you know me, John. I write a lot of different things. I write dark right. thrillers. I write comedic thrillers. I write nonfiction. But I think that that it, it has in the last year or so, and I think this this stoked the fires too to to write more and read. And I'm working on two more short stories now, to write more and read more short stories because you come up with ideas all the time. People always ask, mm-hmm. well, where do you get your ideas? The problem is, is do you have an idea that's got long enough legs to last for 300 right. pages? Well, with a short story, that's not the case. You can have a smaller story. 
it's still hard to write. It's still got to have all the elements. And as Maddie pointed out, it's got to be crisp and clean and to the point. You, you don't have wasted space. But it can be a smaller idea and a smaller story. And I find this extremely fascinating. So when these stories started coming in, I started seeing uh, even more, besides what I was reading from the big names, I started seeing there's a lot of people out there in the world who have great ideas, great skills, and can tell a fun, fun story. And, yes, it gives you confidence. You know, hey, you know, sure, why not do more of this? And so uh, I probably will down the road. Yeah, that. That is that is one thing that you know. The thing about short stories that that I like to read, it's kind of like you know, like what Stephen said. You know, we've all taken that trip from Las Vegas to California, and or from LA to you know LA to Vegas. And the one thing that like a short story does is it can give you a ton of information in a short amount of time, and there's not a lot of fluff. You kind of get a lot of the meat. And you know, I mean, I've always wondered what the hell is on that road ZZYZZ when you drive out there. Yeah. It's, it's the weirdest road ever in the world. I mean, you drive out there, you can't pronounce it. I don't even think the yeah, person no. who made it up can pronounce it. I yeah. just know it's yeah. like the what is it? What's the? the it's like the like, as far as the alphabet goes, it's like the you know like the lowest one in the United in the world, whatever is written. It's but yeah, be. I mean, you start thinking. <laughs> I mean, and it's the most boring drive to go from, you know, Vegas to L.A. I mean, once you hit Baker, there's nothing there. And even when you hit Baker, there's nothing there except a big, tall, freaking thermometer. And so, <laughs> so you start thinking of those things like, what is off these roads? How do these people live? Because we've all thought about that. But the one thing about that makes it a writer is to be able to sustain that that thought through a story. I mean, you see it, I think, in TV shows a lot. And I always say, I don't watch shows anymore that ask you a question. Because once you've answered the question, to me, the show is over. And they do that with a lot, you know, like The Blacklist. Um, I, as soon as the, you know, the question was, who's Reddington to this girl and this and that, I found the show to be over. And I'm like, you know, it was done for me. You know, so whenever you ask me a question, you answer it, I'm done. So the same way kind of in books, once you kind of ask the question, but then you ext- but when I can see you trying to elongate this process to give me the answer, I I then start thinking, you really didn't know what you were doing, did you? <laughs> you got into this and you got confused and you just kept it going. So short stories are a great way to be able to give you all that meat with less of that fluff and get it all down. Um, so, like Maddie, you know, when you're doing, you know, doing a short story, you kind of have to leave out, and we can kind of get a little bit of short story versus novel writing, but you kind of do have to leave out some of the fluff and some of the things that you know adds into novels. But how difficult is it for you then to make sure that your characters come across as a developed way when you're also writing it that way in short story form? It's really, it was really a great exercise because this is one of the first, um, these are some of the first short stories I've ever written. But um, for me, it was how do you pack enough punch in 3,000 words to, to justify people reading it and have them remember it when they closed it, whether have some feeling about it, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, but I, so I, the first thing I did was take the, like for Earth Angel, which um, is about an ex-angel um, who struggles to convince a defrocked priest to help her restore the balance between good and evil from a waxing salon outside the Mission San Juan Capistrano. <laughs> um, you know, I, I approached that um, first as a three-act play, like Steve was saying earlier. 
you know, I, I tried to, you know, make sure I had a, that story structure, basic story structure in a very short form. And then when you were talking about blacklist, I was also thinking about um, approaching this as an episodic um, series. So, you know, thinking about how these series roll out, you know, you get to how much of the character you need to know in the beginning to grab you and what the story is, usually is in the pilot. So I looked at this as writing a pilot in both of these, you know, which is making people relate to the character in whatever form you can with, without a lot of backstory, just getting right in there. And that was a really great exercise. And I think all the writers did a great job of, of doing that. Now, one more question, Matt. Do you have a music background? Because, uh, you know, you got some Nazareth reference in there with Hair of the Dog, a little Earth Angel. In it. So you got, some, you got some songs in there. I don't know. Did, was, that, was, that, uh, was that on purpose, or did it just happen to be that way? Again, I'm covering that webcam on my computer. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> that was that 18-year-old rock band, you know, uh-huh. uh, episode in, in my life. But, yes, and... In, in funny that you say that too, because in Earth Angel, in the car that she drives, Michaela Davis, who's the protagonist, you know, a little nod to James Joyce, but um, her her 1980s um, car um, only plays Bon Jovi. So oh, she's <laughs> up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now, which is kind of cool. Exactly. Huh. So you got to so yeah so because. Uh, you know, I'm a metal guy, so you got some rock in there. I like the Nazareth reference. You don't hear a lot of Nazareth references anymore. <laughs> and you got Bon Jovi in there, so that's good. Very nice. Yeah, I was wondering. I started listening. I'm like, wait a second. Hair of the Dog. I know that sounds familiar. And I'm like, wait a second. And Angel. I go, she's got some music reference in there. There's, a, there's an underlying theme that you put into this besides what it was. So, so Stephen, so kind of the same question for you. Um, you know, kind of about, you know, doing character and all the development kind of closely together. Uh, what kind of challenges did you kind of have with that? Yeah, it's a, it's such, it's so different than writing a, a, a novel where you, you know, you, I'm big on structure, so I structure everything out and outline and, you know, before I start writing. And, of course, everything changes once you start writing, but at least, you know, I had a plan anyway. Right. Um, but True. for a short story... For a short story, I think as Doug mentioned, you know, I mean, it, it's like you can finish this in a long weekend, you know, and um, it, which is very liberating as a writer to know that I can be done in three days. You know, I'm not going to have to work on this for two years. Right. So, um, and so, and the other thing for me is that I I write all my novels in in um, third person. From multiple points of view, because I want to be able to spend time in the antagonist's head, and you can't really do that in a first-person narrative so easily. Uh, and so, but for the short stories, I wrote them in first person, which I found naturally more fun, and I might even be better at it. You know, I don't know, but um, but because I think you're pretty good at both, Steve. So yeah, well, <laughs> I agree. Uh, the uh, so I but you know so sitting down and 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 writing the stories honestly I spent you know I spent like Doug said I spent like a long weekend creating it and then submitted it and you know for both of them I had two different weekends and um, and it was so liberating to do that and the 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 the, per, the uh, theme of the anthology uh, about California um, 
stories about California, you know, came very naturally. But the other part of it that I don't think has been mentioned is that the title is really important. It's all in the story. We wanted to make sure that we were providing real entertaining stories. It wasn't enough to be super literate to get in. You know, I mean, your writing skill by itself wasn't enough to get in. You had to write a really entertaining story, and I think the the book has been very successful in in doing that. I agree. So, 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 Doug, I'm going to kind of go to this one. You know, when when you read an anthology like this, and you and you start discovering new authors, and you're reading it from a fan's perspective, not from an editor's perspective, and trying to find you know, mistakes or anything of this to tighten it, just a fan's perspective once everything is done. When you read a short story from an author, do you go out and then explore to see kind of what they've written before and, and kind of want to grasp and, and kind of see uh, what other things they've written to maybe start getting into into their writing? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, because if you, if you find a voice uh, or a way of telling a story, um, how things are structured that that that, that speaks to you. Um, you want to read more by that person. You know, it, it's interesting that that for Hemingway and me, it was you know, which I started as a, as a teenager. It was the exact opposite. I read his novels first because mm-hmm. nobody read short stories back then. It seemed like it, though right. so I did, and then I started reading his short stories. And oh, and then by the way, I learned about these other two guys named O. Henry and Damon Runyon. <laughs> And I started reading all their short stories, so I actually read a lot of short stories when I was in high school, um, but then moved on to novels. But now it doesn't really matter whether it's a novel or short story. If you find a voice that speaks to you, someone who's able to spin a yarn, then it's like, yeah, okay. You know, it, you know. Uh, uh, I don't know how many of you watch Justified, you know, the great TV show that's based on yeah, short letters. Yeah. My favorite. Um, Raylan Givens obviously appeared in a couple of the novels, writing the rap, and I forget the other. But this thing actually came from a short story called Fire in the Hole. Fire in so the hole. Uh, short stories have tremendous impact um, on writers, on readers, uh, uh, on Hollywood. You know, a lot of great uh, uh, Hollywood. I know movies Stephen have, King has some of short, short stories, stories, of course. Yeah. 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 You know, King and stuff has his stuff. Now, but when yeah. you go and you discover, you know, like let's say, you know, like Maddie and Stephen, you know, wrote a little outside of their of their genre, and so then you kind of read this horror short story, and you're like, wow, this is really cool. But then you go and you find out, wait, wait a second, they're they're a science fiction writer. <laughs> That's kind of different. How do you kind of feel as a, you know, just again from the fans' perspective, because a lot of fans today, it seems like they like to know when they're putting their $15 or whatever they're going to spend on mm-hmm. the Kindle or the paperback, they like to know what they're going to get to a point where they, you know, I don't know if they like to really be surprised with the genre or, you know, per se. Of course, the story can be different, but as long as it's in the same vein of what they know that they're reading. So when you look at that from a fan's perspective and you see, hey, this could write a really great horror short story, and then you look and you say, hey, he's more of a science fiction writer. How does that work? How does that translate to you as a fan? I mean, do you kind of get excited? you kind of like, oh, different, whatnot? You know, what's kind of like the first reaction that you think, you know, that, as a, you know, that fans will, will kind of get when they do that? Well, personally, I, I love wonder. that. Personally, yeah. I love that because yeah, uh, I, do too. I, I like, like writers who stretch themselves and do 
things out of their comfort zone and do a lot of different right. things. Uh, even though some of my favorite writers obviously do the same things over and over again, but uh, and they're very good at it. But you know, I, I call that you know kind of the Hollywood expectation syndrome, so to speak. Hollywood is what is a Transformers '97 now or something. They don't they don't <laughs> yeah, do anything new. They just rehash what's been done before because I think their creative juices are. Or, or drying up I, because they're too young. <laughs> but that's sure. another issue. <laughs> Hollywood doesn't yeah. make great movies anymore, I don't think. But writers, especially when you enter into the short story world, they have the ability to step outside what you normally expect of them. So when you read a short story and you think, oh, this person writes crime fiction, and then you go to their website and start looking at the other things, they say, oh, wait a minute, they write a lot of different stuff. And and the beauty, if you, if you can go to the bookstore, or the library, and pick that stuff up, or go to Amazon's Look Inside, which I think is a great thing, you can you can read two or three pages and say, "Wow, this person really knows how to do this genre too." And the next thing you know, you've bought whatever it is—the short story, the book—and you're, you're reading it, and 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 uh, you're a new fan. So, Maddie and Stephen, I'm going to go to you. People that are going to pick up, you know, people that read your books now. And then they go and they're going to see your short story. What's what's one of the things that you think that they're going to find different from your novel writing to your short story writing? And you know, do you hear back from you know fans that you might not have had before that um, you know maybe will read this and then go back and read your other work and say, wow, you know, it was a very it was a great you know it was great different. It was great to kind of see those things. So, Stephen, I'll start with you. Um, I suspect that that we're going to get some people who are going to say, wow, this guy's even more disturbed than I thought. <laughs> uh, Which is a good thing. That's a good thing. Yes. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I think it is. You know, I, um, I, I love writing. I do it all. You know, I mean, it's, I'm a full-time writer now. I was, I used to be in the um, defense business for, uh, as a technologist and an engineer for a long time. And now I'm, uh, now I write and try to leverage some of that knowledge. But I, I, so I'm learning all the time and, and every day I, I learn something new about the craft or because I re, you know, because of something I read or somebody I talked to or things like that. And I'd like to think that when people pick this book up, and and they read these stories that they're they're not just going to be entertained, but they're actually going to learn something. They're going to learn that wow, this guy used to write that, or this this you know she used to write like this, and now she's writing that. And because um, I think it's important for all the for all the creative people out there to not set limits on themselves to to try to keep expanding the creativity. That's what that's what keeps the juices flowing and keeps keeps you under, keeps you involved. And if you're involved, well, you have to be right. I think you'll end up writing better stuff. Maddie? Yeah, I, yeah I agree. I've, I am very, as a reader, I'm very character-driven, um, which <laughs> limit, makes me sound very limited. But, like, um, I, I love to read Harlan Coben, but I especially love Myron Bolitar books. And I, I read Jim Butcher, and I love Harry Dresden. So for me, and when I write, I think it's about, you know, character and uh, POV and, you know, both um, Verity and Michaela um, in two totally different stories basically have a similar um, 
point of view or or MO, which is action oriented. Um, yeah, they may have their they may be damaged in certain ways, but they they will move forward and nothing stops them. So even though the setting's different and the plot may be different, some of those basic similar character similarities are are in everything that I write. And I want to remind everybody here real quick uh, that we are talking with um, D.P. Lyle, Stephen Jackson, and uh, Maddie Mar. Is it, is it Margarita? It is. It is. Okay. I, I don't want to, and that I is my real name. Names. Yeah, that's oh, my that's real great. name. I so. love that. That's <laughs> great. So, so it kind of, so it kind of doubles as a as a medicine. Um, <laughs> so, Especially with writers, believe me, been to a lot of conferences. You ever? If I'm tell, I always tell people all the time. They're like, you know, can you go up and talk to a writer? You know, can an author? I mean, then I'm like, just wait by the bar. They're all gonna be yeah. there. You can take your pick. Writers always appear at the bar. Whichever one you want to sit and talk to, no problem. <laughs> so and so uh, and of course and so the book we're talking about here is because it's all in the story uh, and it's California and it was edited by um, by Doug. And the book will be out October 21st, wherever you buy books. Uh, go to Amazon and find it in whatever, you, in whatever format you want it in. So kind of looking, I guess, at the story in a whole, is there something that you guys want to do again? Would you do it again? Uh, would you change something? Uh, is there something, you know, that, you know, like, like you said, so going in the future, is there something more that you would do different or leave the same? I think we're all stunned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I can uh, Stephen, I'll ask you, you that one. Okay. What do you think? So, sure. is this something that you would kind of do again? Is there something well, you know that that maybe you'd like to see different? Well, it, it, just uh, that's very timely because uh, just uh, this last Wednesday evening, we all met the 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 board that worked on the anthology. We all met to talk about the release, but also to talk about would we do this again? You know, do, I got uh, cameras everywhere, just so you guys know. Yeah. I, I know these That's guys. right. Um, I'm smiling at the I'm smiling at the ceiling light here, just in case. So, uh, but hi. The uh, the uh, nice, nice blue the, shirt. The you consensus got was the consensus was that wow, this was way more work than we ever in, envisioned, mm-hmm. and yes, we can't wait to do it again. Uh, yeah. If if uh, you know if the book has success and because it does you know being a publisher is a big financial commitment and we're you know we're a nonprofit organization and we have to be careful about how we spend the organization's money but if uh, if we can get enough sales to do this then we would you know everybody all the way from Doug as editor to uh, Sharon Goldinger who was our production manager and did a, a phenomenal. Job. Amen. Uh, and uh, uh, Don Westenhavern, who who was our, uh, you know, collected all the stories and did all the hard work of stripping the names out and keeping score and and then ran all the finances for us. Uh, you know, that's a lot of work, and I think that's probably the most work of anybody. And um, but having done it once makes you feel. Uh, it makes you feel so good to see the book. You know, I'm sitting here staring actually at the advanced uncorrected galley uh, right now, and it 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 makes you feel so good to know that we did something that should help so many of our members uh, in their confidence and in their in their careers. And 
and to, to be able to do it again, then, you know, we'd have to have some slight difference in theme or something. I mean, some some minor change, I, I imagine. But, yeah, we hope to, we hope, you know, in, a, in six months or so to say, hey, you know what, we made enough money that we could do this again. You know, and, and you brought and you just brought up a great point. Like, can, I like to ask that question: is, is that, you know, you wrote this for the benefit of the organization, and the things that and the things that people can get out of it as you know writers by joining the organization. So, would you recommend, like all young writers that are maybe not involved in an organization, that they should seek one out and look for one and get involved because it's only going to help them, you know, further. Um, and I'll go to you, Maddie. What, what, you know, what are your thoughts on on things like that? You know, is that is that advice that you would give a young author to be like, go search out a writing group like this, get them, you know, become a member, start becoming more involved, and, and it's only going to help you further. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think not only I, I can only speak from my perspective, but I mean, it has been uh, for me. I belong to. Like I said, Sisters in Crime, which is a great organization, and I have a critique group, a writer's critique group that I go to, um, at least I try to go to regularly. Don't don't rat me out, Steve. Um, And then um, SCWA. So, I mean, I do that for me from an inspiration point of view um, to be around such um, great writers and to network with people and to stay abreast of what's going on. Um, to hear the stories that they're working on um, and how they approach things, and it just makes me better. So I, I would recommend that to anybody. And, Doug, you're in a unique situation, too, because, uh, you know, you do a lot for the ITW, the International Thriller Writers, but the Southern California Writers Association is, of course, a lot more focused just here in Southern California. So how is it different for more of a local writing organization compared to an international writing organization and what authors will get out of both in different ways. Yeah. I, I think they're exactly the same, only different. I mean, obviously one of them is big and international, the other small and local. But the thing they have in common is bringing writers together. Um, you know, And writing's, writing's a very lonely, lonely endeavor. You, you sit by yourself, you know, and and murder people all day long and you know it, it warps you a little bit but it but it is it's it's kind of therapeutic very, too in a way it is it's a, it's a very it's a very difficult job and you do it by yourself with no feedback with no sounding board uh and so when you go out and meet other writers and talk to them about what they're doing and how they're doing things and you read their work or you have a critique group i belong to one too i've belonged to several in the past but the one now has been going on for a while and, and that helps um and, and and so that's one perspective is how does it help you as a writer it helps you a lot by seeing what other people are doing and then just have that camaraderie that knowing you're all in the same boat Secondly, I think organizations uh, out there, uh, especially local writers groups and stuff, should should look at this and say, you know, we ought to look into doing this. And the reason is is that it, it, it it's a value-added, if you will, uh, benefit for their membership and, and their local community because people can can stretch out, as Maddie was talking about earlier, and stretch out their writing and, and offer short stories and put these Put these things in someone's hands and see if you can put together an anthology of your own. It is a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. And, and it, it, 
community. It energizes your group because it gives you something to focus on other than the usual. You know, you meet every month, you, you listen to them, and all that stuff's great and all that stuff's valuable. But let's let's throw a little spark in there. And I think these things throw a spark in your organization. So I would, you know, I hope we do do another one here, and I hope other organizations say, hey, you know, if those morons can do it, we can do it. (laughs) So so it's inspirational. And 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 if I could add just uh, one thing, Yeah, yeah, please. And then I got a question. Uh Go ahead. Do it up. Um, We have a short story contest every month in the SCWA, and so many of the people who got published in this book have have been submitting short stories to that contest over years and years. And going to your question of whether you know local groups like this are valuable, the the difference in the quality and the confidence of those writers from the short stories they submitted five years ago to the ones they submitted for this anthology, the gap is 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 very big. And so we can see uh, from our vantage point the the value the organization has for our members because we can see the writing change and whether it's the whether it's the monthly uh, you know lectures that we have I mentioned we're we're really a perpetual writers conference where we bring in you know it's it's like going to a writers conference but instead of having four speakers at the same time you wanted to listen to and you have to choose you you know you once a month you you come in and you and you hear these people talk and the value that these people have and Maddie by the way a shout out to Maddie she's the one who gets all our speakers and um the quality of the speakers is just magnificent so props to Maddie uh so that's you know it's I mean it's really cool and imagine imagine you're you're somebody who's wanted to write your whole life and maybe you've even self-published a novel or something like that. But now, you know, this Christmas, you you hand out books that weren't self-published, you know, that were, were, were done by an independent publisher, and, you know, your story's in there. I mean, how does that make people feel? And so from my point of view, I mean, I just get... I just get goosebumps thinking about how some people are going to have that experience, and uh, I'm so excited for them. Go ahead, Maddie. No, I was just going to say that that's true, and that's great. And one of, one of the things that we were so excited about is the quality of the work that was submitted. I mean, we got stories. Um, we had 65 to 70 submissions. But they were so good, and it was so – I'm sure I was not on the editorial committee, but I can only imagine how difficult it was to select the stories. And, and if the stories weren't selected, you know, it, it may not have been uh, the quality of the writing. It may have been, you know, the um, uh, connection to the theme. So there are lots of reasons why the stories were selected and why they weren't. But one of the things that we did that makes this, uh, this anthology a little different is, you know, for everyone that submitted stories, if your story was not selected, um, we had a, um, a professional editor who gave you an hour free um, of consultation to go over the story and talk about some of the issues in the story and what you could have done or what you can do to make that story better and maybe resubmit to somewhere else. 
So, you know, as far as there, it's, this was a commercial uh, venture, but also an educational one. And we wanted to make it feel differently. And I, and I hope we did, because I, I think it was a really exciting group of stories. But I think participating for all our members, whether you were in the anthology or not, was hopefully a good thing. Absolutely. So I'm going to throw this out real quick, because I, I, hear, I hear from a lot of authors that have not been published. And I think they're, and they, they're kind of nervous about joining an organization, you know, like SCWA, because they're not published. Maybe they feel a little embarrassed because there aren't anything published. Do they have to have, be, have, be actually have published works to join the organization? And if not, would you recommend that they do it before they get published, because it will kind of help them along their way to getting published? Yeah, I think our primary our primary uh, membership is uh, on the on the side of, of you know not being published, learning the craft, learning the business, um, trying to find a trying to pi- find a, a mechanism to to grow. Uh, we 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 have we we have many published authors, but that's certainly not a requirement. And in fact, it's that I think that's probably you know people who are published is probably the minority of the group and, uh, and so we're always welcome you know we we get like five new members a month probably something like that and most of those people are 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 trying to find a a home to where they can learn and improve their craft and start to understand the business side of things and 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 all that you know marketing all the things that are required of an author these days so as we kind of get down to the end here, we got about you know ten ten minutes or so left. I want to want you guys to kind of talk about your your writing outside of the anthology, uh, maybe works and books and things that you have that you you know that are out now, and and you want to kind of talk about real quick. So, Maddie, I'll start with you. What what do you got going on outside the anthology that you want people to know about? Well, I uh, I am shopping um, a comedy thriller, humorous thriller. Um, and I'm working on working on the novel format of Earth Angel, um, and I also um, have a host a monthly uh, author forum in Orange County for published and unpublished authors. And every month we have three authors read. I guess it's the format is a writer's salon. They read maybe 200 pages, and then um, we do it in a coffee shop, Keen Coffee in Tustin, and um, we discuss that those. 2,000 words, and then we do an author interview. So today, Lit Up, it's called Lit Up Orange County, and we've interviewed and showcased over 130 local authors. So that also keeps me busy. And uh, so, Stephen, what you got? Well, I have a I have a published novel. I was very lucky to um, find somebody who wanted to publish it, and it's called The Zeus Payload. It's um, a book about cyber... Terrorism, um, based largely on my work as a technology director in the defense business and the intelligence services. Um, so, um, and it's uh, it was a, it was a, it was great fun to to write and and uh, you know obviously a big thrill to have somebody want to publish it. Uh, I have three other novels that are in various stages of uh, preparedness. I had one novel. That I'd actually sold to a publisher, but then they decided um, they decided to go out of business before they published it. So, <laughs> so I have to start over. Uh, but uh, and then I have two more that I'm in the process of writing and editing. Um, 
the first two were thrillers. The second two are uh, horror novels. So I'm a big horror novel fan. So uh, yeah. I thought, well, I ought to try that. And um, I think I mentioned I had five. I've had five stage plays produced, and I'm expecting one or two more to be produced next year. Um, short 10-minute plays. Um, so there's an international playwriting festival here in San Juan Capistrano, and they get 300 plays in, and um, they select seven to put on stage. So uh, I'm always uh, – I, I, matter of fact, yesterday I just finished the first draft of this year's middle, so I'll be punching that up this weekend and sending it in. Uh, anyway, so it's great fun. I uh, – keeps me uh keeps me busy every day and and i I feel like I learn something new every day so it's that that part's really invigorating doug well you know a lot about what I'm doing uh i uh, have uh deep six out and that's the first jake longley thriller and the second one a list is um is coming out in December, and we'll be back on the radio about You'll that. You'll be back on. We'll be talking about that in yeah. depth. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the, the first in the series was nominated for a Seamus and a USA Best Book Award, so I was thrilled about that. Uh, yeah. And so the second one's coming out. I'm working on the third one uh, already, about halfway through it. Also working on another another novel, uh, a darker, uh, the new character and everything. Uh, that's about. I'm halfway through that. Uh, got a short story that's going to be in the next Sherlock Holmes anthology. I'm just finishing the polish on that to send it off, and another short story. Not sure where I'm going to send it yet. And then I've got a nonfiction project that we're pitching <clears throat> with uh, Dr. Catherine Ramsland, and she and I are uh, doing a uh, nonfiction book on medical murders, uh, murders by people in the medical profession. So uh, uh, a lot of stuff. Nice. We're trying to convince so, Doug to um, do an audio book uh, on of um, A list because every time I read, I hear Jake or read Jake Longley, I hear Doug's voice. So well, you know, he's taking voiceover classes so he can do it. Yeah, I can Don't do that. I'm his agent, so <laughs> yeah, call that. Doug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of that, I mean, now is this book going to be out? I know it's in Kindle and paperback. Is it going to be out in audio form, or you haven't done that? You're not going to go that far yet. We talked about it the other night. It's, um, yeah. it's something we might want to explore. Yeah, I know. I, I love audio books, and I think they're great, especially you know when you when you live in LA and you have a commute that's an hour and a half uh, one way to work. Audio books <laughs> come in handy. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> I think eighty five percent of uh, LA should have audio books because you're always sitting in traffic. You got to do something besides just looking at the same cars <laughs> over and over again. Um, but yeah, I do agree that I think that you know Doug should have some audio. Now, so so Maddie, where's the best place for people to find your writing? Um, what's your website? And, uh, and then we'll get to the website of the book and stuff. So what's your personal website for people to yeah, it's, find um, out about your real writing? Real Mad Life, RealMadLife dot com. And um, I'm also Facebook, on Twitter Facebook. and stuff. Yeah, yeah fa- Facebook, Twitter. Uh, I'm everywhere. Except you got to be now, don't you? I, yeah, no yeah, I have not. Yeah. I have not bridged Instagram yet, but I'm get, I'm getting there. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen. Well, I have a website, and it's stephengjackson.com. Um, by the way, the reason it's Stephen and not Steve, because only my mother, when I was really bad, called me Stephen. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but it turns out stevejackson.com was taken by another thriller writer, and so I, I decided to use the Bastard. pen name Stephen for my writing. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. stephengjackson.com. Um, you can also 
the book has its own website, uh, thezeuspayload.com. Uh, and I have a Facebook uh, personal and fan page, so people can find me on there as well. And uh, where's the best place people find you? I know you're everywhere, too. Yeah, uh, where's the best uh, dplylmd.com, and from that you can connect to all my Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, all that stuff. Uh, also my blog and the radio show, uh, Crime and Science Radio, that Jan Burke and I did for three and a half years that, that John produced. Um, yeah, it was we great. We did 70 shows. It's defunct now, but all the shows are archived and there for you. Um, so dplylmd.com. It's never defunct. It's in syndication. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so, where's the best? And so, what's the best website for people to find out? You know, um, so SCWA is it dot org? Well, the website for SCWA is actually ocrider.com. Okay, ocrider.com, and that's for the actual organization. Yeah. Right. right? Okay, and right. so, and then the, the if they want to find out more about the book. It's scwaanthology.com. Dot com. Yes. Yes. So, so scwa and then anthology.com. So, yeah, you're gonna put the two A's together, um, and and then people can find out. Like, so by going to ocwriter.com, just just find out more about the organization and if if they want to join and and they, they and they have to be part of uh, like Southern California, right? Because of course they meet. They can't be in Alaska and try to join the SCWA. Well, anybody can join. Uh, we do have we do have a monthly newsletter that goes out to all the members that captures the the results of the meeting plus a lot of other interesting information. Um, and so we do have some members who actually don't live in Southern California. Uh, most of them do, and uh, most of them attend the meetings. Um, but we'll you know we'll take anybody. And honestly, it's you know the SCWA for an annual membership is thirty dollars. So it's like the greatest bargain on earth honestly so for, uh, so uh, for $30 for 12 months you, you know you can become a member and get all the benefits and I mean we 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 give stipends to people who go to conferences we give uh, uh, you know you you have generously offered uh, your uh, magazine to our members for free you know yeah, things yeah. like that so we've got uh, you know huge benefits for uh, for people who join, uh, even if you even if you can't make many of the meetings, but if you just make like if you did nothing else and you came to three meetings a year, you'd you know and went to one outside conference, you'd be like doubling your money. So it's a <laughs> really a good deal. Yeah, and not only that, you get to hobnob with authors like D.P. Lyle and, um, and Jonathan Mabry and yeah, Chris Chris Reich. Uh, yeah. So we have we have great speakers too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, and, and 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 that's the thing when people go to conferences. I mean, you're going to get out of it what you put into it, and and when when you look at the writing as a business, of course, you know Warren Buffett. Even though you know he's not a writer, it, the best thing they always say is invest in yourself, um, and that's what yeah. you can do. And so as a writer, you have to invest in yourself by joining organizations, by going to conferences, by you know trying to suck up as much education as you can about the craft of it uh, outside of just reading the fiction because they always say you know to be a better writer you have to be a better reader well you also have to educate yourself in how to write and when you're reading what you're reading and how to kind of transform that into your own mind i mean you can always use today's things that are going on i mean just look what happened in las vegas 
I mean, you know, the, the ideas that probably happened from that book and authors were probably ringing through their ears. I mean, I don't remember, I don't remember reading a book, and it, maybe it's happened, where somebody was in a hotel and fired that many and fired into a crowd of people like that, you know, for whatever reason. Because the one thing that they don't have is, why did he do this? And that's the one question that every author asks their character. Why are you doing this? And then to come up with those answers. And so that's where Absolutely. I think you get out of those organizations, yeah. It's always the why. It's always the why. Always the why. You can't just, I mean, very few people just kill because they're batshit crazy. I mean, that's just, there's always a reason why they do it. Regardless of if their reason is batshit crazy, they do have a reason that makes sense to them. And exactly. that's the important part is what's exactly. trying to figure it out. So, well, guys, I want to thank you all so much for coming on. It has been a pleasure to be able to speak with you guys here for this hour and to get in with this book. It's all in the story is the name of the book. It's out October 21st. You can go on Amazon and buy it. You can order it in paperback right now. The Kindle version will be out when the book comes out. So thank you all three for coming out and joining me today. It's been fascinating. And, um, again, wish you guys nothing but the best in the future and look forward to seeing what you got coming out. Thank you. Thank you, John. So, again, everybody, those were authors. Maddie, Margarita, Stephen Jackson, D.P. Lyle, and the book, again, is called It's All in the Story. Make sure you check that out, scwaanthology.com, O.C. Writer. Um, uh, you can go to ocwriter.com, or did they say .org? See, my mind freaking goes away when I hear things, and I have so much stuff going on in my head. It rattles up there. It just rattles around, and, I, and sometimes things fall out like a ping-pong ball. Um, and so make sure you check out that book. I mean, you know, great short stories. Uh, you know, it's about 225 pages. You're going to get a lot of action within those pages, so make sure you go and check that out. We're going to take a short break, and we are going to be back here with our next guest, uh, Michael Brandman, and he is going to be speaking about his latest book, Missing Persons. So in the meantime, we will give you something to listen to and hear this.
So welcome back, everybody. After the break, I took you back to the 80s there with that one. Uh, a little Fast Times at Ridgemont High, if you didn't know uh, what scene that was from. Maybe you should go watch the movie, and then when you hear the song, you'll know the scene, and you'll be like, oh, that's an iconic scene when you hear that song. Um, so, again, I, I want to thank, uh, you know, Maddie and Stephen and Doug for coming on and, and talking, uh, you know, for the first hour about the the anthology. But we're going to shift gears now, and we're going to go into our next guest. He is author um, Michael Brandman, and if you are, if you say, boy, the name sounds familiar, I know the name. Well, that's because Michael was also the writer of three of the Robert P. Barker books in the uh, Jess Stone series, uh, Jesse Stone series. So you might be like, ah, that's where it was. Well, yeah, well, Michael has his, his new book out, and it's um, part of a new series in his Buddy Steel Mystery series called Missing Persons. So we want to Michael welcome Michael here to the show. So, Mike, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? Good, John. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. So you're kind of fresh off of your, you know, writing three books and the route, you know, for for Robert Parker and his Jesse Stone series, and you thought that was so much fun. You decided, hey, I'm going to write a series, uh, Buddy Steele, and the first book is Missing Persons. So tell us what you got going on. Well, uh, Buddy Steele is um, um, a uh, former LAPD homicide detective who. Uh, was having a terrific life as a single guy in uh, Los Angeles, uh, Hollywood division, um, more interested in hooking up than settling down and living a kind of sybaritic uh, California lifestyle. When he gets a call from his father, who is the sheriff uh, of San Remo County, uh, which is up the coast, fictional county, uh, but uh, north of uh, Santa Barbara County, and um, mm-hmm. his father has been diagnosed, he learns, with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And he asks his son, Buddy, to come and help him, not only ha- to have his back as his uh, powers begin to um, degenerate uh, w- as a result of the disease, but also as a... Uh, as, um, a possible um, assistant uh, when he finally decides he wants to pull the plug on his life. So so Buddy, uh, who has issues with his father, uh, unresolved, uh, uh, gives up his lifestyle, uh, cherished lifestyle, and moves up to San Remo County and becomes uh, the assistant sheriff to his father and uh, really takes over running the department there. And uh, his father and he um, have uh, life issues that they want to work out, and um, and Buddy's plate is suddenly full with uh, um, uh, a woman who's gone missing, uh, the wife of a of a local um, uh, preacher uh, who uh, who's an international television star. Um, like the evangelists uh, who are televised constantly, and suddenly there's upheaval in the church and in the life of the family because this woman has gone missing. So, you know, so so you set the the, the story outside, you know, of Los Angeles in the small town, but it's still in California, and like you said, just kind of north of Santa Barbara. Was there a reason why you kind of picked that setting instead of, you know, placing it into the, you know, the big hustle bustle of, of L.A. and, you know, making all the L.A. stuff coming in and, instead of doing, you know, like, like the small town? Well, 
the small town appeals to me as it appealed to Bob Parker when he when he set Jesse Stone in a fictionalized version of Marblehead, Massachusetts. Uh, yeah. The politics of a, of a small town are different than than a big town, and and the uh, sheriff's uh, uh, job is different uh, than the than that of a homicide detective. And uh, I I just thought that. Uh, it, w- it would be interesting to examine uh, what that life is like uh, and what those pressures are and um, how uh, a guy who is really a, uh, has been a big-town police officer, how he adjusts to life in a small town, which was his hometown originally. Right. Now, I mean, the other thing, too, is, um, you know, when you bring in, like, Lou Gehrig's disease, I mean, that's, that's that's one of those diseases that a lot of people heard about, but I don't think they quite understand maybe the significance of what it does. Because the one thing it doesn't do is it doesn't scramble the mind. I mean, you still have all the thinking and the cognitive of the thinking part, even if, yes. you know, everything else. I mean, there's a guitar player, you know, that I know, I don't know personally, that his name was Jason Becker, and he was a metal guitar player. And then all of a sudden he comes down with ALS, but he still compo- composes music by... Uh, the shifting of his eyes and his family knows how to talk to him and do those things. So when you kind of decided that, you know, you wanted to kind of go the route with the ALS, did you do a lot of research, you know, with the complexity of that disease and how those things would affect, um, you know, uh, Burton Steele? Yes. Yes. And also uh, I learned along the way that there, uh, in, in, it's, an, it's an incurable disease ultimately, right. but, there have been uh, uh, recent um, developments in the medical world where uh, uh, a drug has been uh, found to uh, slow the progress of the disease and so uh, and give the victim some more time. So uh, ultimately, uh, Buddy's father gets on that protocol and. Uh, so his the disease is not as virulent as uh, it has been uh, prior to the discovery of this drug, and although the the prognosis is still grim, um, it it uh, allows the uh, the senior uh, Steele to um, be more active and more physically aggressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's probably something when you were thinking of the series that you're probably going to have to tackle in later books when when things progress, and that's going to be like at a very you know emotional kind of time. So you're going to have a lot of emotion you know wrapped up into this, and you know just like Jesse Stone, who's a very very flawed character. I mean, he's very intelligent. He's extremely flawed um, in his personal life and even some of his professional life, and those things come out and how he has to kind of get out of that thing. You know, when when you're making, uh, you know, Buddy and and Burton kind of together, there, there's going to have to be something that's going to kind of climax it, I guess. You know, you know, later down the later down the road, and have you kind of thought about how that's you know that's going to happen, and are you kind of building the audience with the series, starting with Missing Persons, to how you know that underlining storyline is going to have to you know eventually be be told? Yes. Uh, I've, I've, um, I'm already in editorial on the second book, and I've got a draft of the third book in the series. 
Of course. And, <laughs> and so, um, yes, the there is going to be emotion in, in the scenes, and Buddy is going to be asked to do things uh, that he doesn't want to do. Uh, and, and also uh, his stepmother, who is the mayor of the town, um, is uh, also uh, uh, dead set against any kind of um, uh, end-of-life uh, procedures that uh, would would conflict with the the uh, life playing out to its very end, and and as Buddy's father says, uh, I, I'm not in this uh, uh, for the end game uh, because I don't want to be lying around with tubes in myself and not able be able to do anything. Uh, so he's looking for an assisted suicide uh, and for Buddy to help him with that, and that is a bone of contention between them. Yeah. I mean, when you decided to write this series, I, I, how much of you know writing the, the Parker books and, and Jesse Stone uh, was kind of the influence in helping you, you know, create Buddy Stealing and getting your series up? Well, they helped in a big way because I hadn't written novels before. I I, I was a I, I'm a primarily I've been a, a movie producer and uh, and on occasion I've been uh, writing movies. Uh, I met Bob Parker along the way, and and he and I wrote some things together. And uh, uh, when he passed uh, out of the blue, um, uh, Ivan Held at Putnam, who's the head of Putnam, said, get the guy who's been writing the movies, which I had been. So that sort of opened the door to a whole new uh, way of uh, writing. And uh, with help from the editorial staff at Putnam's, um, I wrote three uh, Jesse Stone novels, and along the way, hopefully, I learned something about novel writing, which uh, which has really uh, sort of informed uh, the way in which uh, I've tackled and am tackling these Buddy Steele uh, novels. Yeah. And, you know, switching from, like you said, uh, you know, kind of from the movies aspect and now into the novel aspect, and you have a lot of authors that, you know, want to do screenwriting and want to do novels, and, and you know, it's so much different. Um, you know, I talked to a guy who did the same thing, and he writes for TV, and he goes, I can write a scene in TV by a guy walking into a church, smoking a cigarette, and spitting in the, you know, into the into the holy water that's there at the front, and you already know that guy right there is evil, and I haven't said a word and he hasn't said a word. But when you're writing it in a book, to write that whole scene out and still make him as scary as you want him, that's a totally different thing that you've got to tackle. And how are you able to kind of navigate through those waters? Well, I think I read a quote of yours, actually. That Uh-oh. I think you said that in order to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. Yes. Was that you? I, uh, that's been out there for a long time. I, I can't take credit for that one, but if you want to give it to me, I'll take it. But it's true. I mean, if, you know, you can't be a good writer if you don't read. I, exactly. You just can't. It's impossible. So, um, so, and I'm, I've been a, uh, an inveterate reader since I was a boy, and uh, which is a long time ago. Uh, so, it's helped, and it's also helped that in in the course of making movies. Uh, 
I've worked with some of the great writers. Um, I've produced um, Arthur Miller and David Mamet and Stephen Sondheim and uh, wow. Tom Stoppard and David Hare and um, on and on. I've, a, a lot of great writers uh, I've worked closely with, and um, all of them have have advice to give uh, because I question them all about uh, – how do you write and 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 what do you do and and they all have their own protocols and they all do uh, uh what they do but um the more you read and the more you discuss uh, with other writers uh the mechanics of writing and the difference mm-hmm. between writing screenplays let's say and writing uh novels um i absorbed a lot and um and it's all helpful and I also i have at at uh, at poison pen press who who published missing persons i have um two editors there uh barbara peters and annette rogers who are spectacularly gifted editors and they uh, their voices and their comments and their suggestions and their teachings uh, have been enormously helpful in in uh, helping me find the way to take a scene as you discussed that scene where there's not a word said and and we know that this is a, an evil guy of how to place that same scene in a novel and uh, and describe not only the the settings but the emotions and the uh the um the narrative of that scene uh in 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 novel form as opposed to in camera form right so get into a little bit here of missing persons and um let us like what kind of what secondary character do you think is the one that kind of um, jumps out on the page and has, you know, kind of that bigger voice than maybe you thought they would when you were uh, starting to write the book? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the, there is a, a small uh, sheriff's department force that's based in Freedom, which is in the city of the township of Freedom, which is in the, uh, this fictional county, San Remo County, and there are a handful of, uh, of of sheriff's deputies who work in the department, and all of them uh, enjoy um, needling Buddy in different ways. That they all acknowledge that he's the boss and the boss to be, but they're they're not afraid to. Uh, call him out for his foibles or for uh things that they f- believe that he does that that are worthy of puncturing. So uh, in addition to the good work that they do, they also are comic foils uh, for Buddy because there is banter between them and um uh they um uh, they they have all come to life in a in a in a different way and and they bring the police the sheriff's department to life so uh, i would have to say uh, if, if 
it's not a single character, but it's a it's a group of characters that um, and their response to Buddy that that makes him more human uh, and makes the 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 department more uh, uh, lively. I want to remind everybody here that we're speaking with author Michael Brandman, and uh, the, his uh, latest book is called Missing Persons. It is the first in his Buddy Steele mystery series. You can find it. It's out now. Go to Amazon. You can pick it up. Um, it's available uh, however you want to buy it, whether it's uh, you know whether it's paper, hardcover, Kindle, audio. The the book is there, so you can check it out and, and go get it now. Were, were you a little nervous um, when the book kind of was written and kind of came out and, you know, wasn't quite sure maybe how people were going to, uh, you know, receive it. And this is kind of like, you know, you're a new venture with a new story, uh, new characters and, and things like that. Well, I, I, was, I think I was totally nervous um, <laughs> uh, because uh, who knows how, how people are going to respond to, to what you write, you know, uh, I know uh, I, I'm still making Jesse Stone movies. Uh, I, I've right. worked in partnership with Tom Selleck. We've made nine movies, and we're writing the ten. I love them. Those are great movies, too. They're Thank great. you. Thank you. But uh, you, you just never know how people are going to respond. And uh, yeah. um, people, uh, uh, some people, uh, there are people who are going to always hate what you do. And... Um, uh, I, I learned this back in in my days in the theater where so much of the success of plays is predicated on whether or not the critics like you. Uh, and, and of course, now in in the era of social media, everyone's a critic. So, mm-hmm. uh, But what you have to do is you have to learn to just go forward and, um, and try not to be thin-skinned uh, uh, when, when uh, criticism uh, c- comes your way. Uh, now, the one thing, of course, when, when people start putting these these characters from books onto the screen, it's almost like that's when you read another book after the fact, it's like you hear that voice. So whenever you start reading a Dan Brown book, it's almost like you, you hear Tom Hanks talking when Robert Langdon talks, or, or now yeah. when you, uh, you know, and so Jesse Stone, of course, you see Tom Selleck. That's the voice, that's the thing that you that you hear whenever you read Jesse Stone now because he's the face of that person. When yes. you were kind of writing Buddy Steele and since you're in the movies thing, if someone were to ask you who would be the face you would put to Buddy Steele that they would recognize, who would that person be? Well, you know, I, I, although he may be a tad old, um, I, Jeremy Renner would, I think, knock it out of the park. Jeremy is very good, yeah. And he's, he's done a, the kind think, of, you know, he's done. He's a great action movie person. He really is. He's and also, he's a he, he's an action movie person who also is an enigmatic guy and yeah and and he acts with a kind of subtext that is in many ways as interesting as as the as the textual performance he gives. There's always something going on with him. And uh, and I I love that about actors. I I love. Uh, an actor who's got a um uh, a subtextual life going because they're they the audiences are, are compelled by those those actors you know Russell Crowe uh, uh is uh, is there's always something else going on 
And uh, so if if we were ever to make um, uh, any anybody steal uh, um, movies or or series, uh, it would be great to have one of those kinds of actors. Something like that, yeah. And, and, and this, this, this is kind of weird, though, that, you know, when when you start seeing those books, it's like that's the first, that's like the, 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 the picture that kind of pops into your head. I think I think some people are kind of upset that I think now they see Tom Cruise for Jack Reacher. Um, and they're like, well, that's not, you know, that's not really him. But it's almost like that's kind of the face you see. I, I don't know. Do you think that Hollywood kind of screws that up sometimes for people when they do that also, when you kind of put – that face, and it's and it wasn't well received. I mean, Cruz was not well received as Jack Reacher for his writing fans um, because he was short. He wasn't big. He didn't have the look that Lee Child kind of wanted him to be. So, do you think kind of Hollywood kind of can screw that up sometimes too? Well, yeah. I, I mean, it's hard. You know, it's awfully hard to get the guy that the original author. Had in his head, whether it's an actor or just the character itself, it's hard to match that up. It's 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 more rare to get the right guy than it is to get the guy who isn't really quite right. And uh, um, I remember when um, uh, when we started the Jesse Stone movies and the franchise, Bob and I always thought uh, that Selleck would be the perfect uh, Jesse Stone, and uh, I, I, Tom and I had already made a bunch of westerns together, and uh, we gave him uh, the manuscript of Stone Cold, which was the second book in the series, but the one that we thought was uh, of the two, which there were only two at the time, uh, we thought mm-hmm. would be more cinematic. And uh, so we gave it to Tom on a Thursday, and on Friday morning he said, I'm in. And um, and it was a Bob Parker story because Bob so innately believed that that Tom was right for this. He was really thrilled that Tom uh, would agree or had agreed to to play the character. And um, uh, all throughout the process, uh, Bob uh, kept his distance. And I had made uh, three Spencer movies with Bob, who and he, and he had been really interested in the process and had even appeared in in each of the three movies. But with Jesse Stone, he kept his distance, and uh, he said he just somehow knew that Selleck was right, and he didn't want to be an influence uh, at all. And in fact, he wouldn't even look at uh, any of the rough cuts of the movie uh, or one we had it finished before it went on the air. He wouldn't even look at, at that. He said he wanted to see it on the air, on CBS, on the night it premiered, just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So so now it's 11 o'clock at night on on Sunday, and the movie is finished, and the phone rings, and it's Joan Parker, who is a <laughs> sensational woman. And Joan says, Bob can't talk to you now because he's so emotionally impacted by how good he thought Tom was that he's yeah. unable to speak. So, uh, so we, so Tom is when you're right. When people think of of Jesse Stone, they think of of Tom. But when they think of, for example, Spencer, and when we picked up the Spencer franchise, uh, when when I was able to sell uh, 
a few movies uh, to a, to the A and E network. Um, we B- Bob did not want uh, the original actor uh, to to play uh, Spencer again. We wanted a, a different Spencer, and we mm-hmm. we came up with Joe Mantegna, who yeah. is arguably Bob's biggest fan, and who totally understood the character and and could play it with that subtext that uh, that that gave I think. Spencer the dimension that he had in the books and uh and 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 we thought it, it would provide that same dimension in the movies well uh, people um we made 3 movies uh and the biggest criticism was as it is with Tom Cruise that uh, Joe just didn't have the 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 full body uh presence that that they uh, imagined Spencer to have so sometimes you get it right and sometimes you don't. And, uh, you know, Hollywood uh, uh, ha- has a lot of very smart, very capable executives who wrestle with that problem. And uh, and uh, you, you you pick an actor and you pray for Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. I, I, that, that is a perfect way to end it. I think that's perfectly well put <laughs> So, Michael, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fascinating to speak with you about your your newest venture now, going out, Missing Persons, uh, A Buddy Steel Mystery, book one. So people love to get the beginning, and here it is. Uh, they can go out and grab this wherever they uh, buy books and however whatever format they want it in. It's available. So thank you so much for coming on. And michaelbrandman.com is the best place for people to find you out, right? Yes. Yeah, michaelbrandman.com is the website to go find out all about the book and everything you got going on. So thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. And thank I, you, I look John. forward to see what you got going on in the future. Enjoy. Thanks very much. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. So again, everybody, that is Michael Brandman, and the book is called Missing Persons, first in the Buddy Steele Mystery Series. Um, so make sure that you go out and you grab that. Again, whatever format you want to buy it in, you can find it and you can get it. We're going to take our last break, and we're going to be back here. It's October, so you know what that means. Of course, Lady Emily is back, and Tasha Alexander will be on the show talking about her. It's always one of our favorite times of the year to be able to speak with Tasha. So in the meantime, we'll take a quick break, and you can listen to this, and we'll be right back. Won't you smile a little
I want to thank you all again for joining us uh, on the show. It was great. Again, if you want to go back and if you're just catching it now, uh, you can go back and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. You'll hear the great conversation we have for the first hour with Doug Lyle and uh, Maddie Margarita and Stephen Jackson talking about the anthology. It's all the story, uh, all stories from uh, the SCWA, the Southern California Writers Association, that they, they put together. And then we just talked to Michael Brandman. Um, and now it's October. And so we know what that means. October is the month of Lady Emily, and Lady Emily is now in book 12. And so we were so pleased to be able to have Tasha back on the show. So, Tasha, how you doing? Of course, it's always a pleasure. Oh, it's always so great to talk to you, John. I look forward to it every year. Every October. I always start wondering, like around July and August, I start sending out an email. I sent one to you directly, but I don't know if you got it. And then good thing Tom. I don't think I got it. Oh, yeah, good thing Tom to was able sure. to get to get a hold of me. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, That's could... okay. We got you. I just, I just know goodness. it's always around that time. And I start booking October. I'm like, I got to leave space open because, you know, it's like February's like Lisa Gardner. And then I kind of have you in October and I kind of leave the space open. And But book 12, again, we say this every year. It's book 10. It's book 11. It's book 12. It's, she, it's fabulous. She's wonderful. She keeps on going. And well, now, thank you. And now she's in St. Petersburg. Um, yep kind of moved it a little bit. Death in St. Petersburg is the, is the title of this one. So what did you do to Lady Emily this time? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> well, you know, I always torment her. Um, no. I'd wanted for years to have her go to Russia. Um, partly, we talked about that a couple years ago, yeah. We did, didn't we? You know, partly yeah. because I have just always been fascinated by Russia, particularly St. Petersburg. And I think that's largely due to the fact that I spent – a lot of time as a young girl taking studying ballet, and mm-hmm. my teacher was actually a Russian woman, Madame Butchkowski. I was always terrified of her. Uh, 
she actually was trained herself in Paris after her her family had fled from the revolution and she was taught in Paris by one of the prima ballerinas from the then Imperial Ballet Company which now is Mariinsky and during Soviet years was the the Kirov but she just absolutely instilled in me a, a love of Russian dance and so that's always sort of been in my background um but also, you know, there's something very fascinating about the Romanovs and the the fall of the czars. And so I hadn't wanted to take Emily to Russia too soon because I wanted to kind of wait until things were really kind of boiling in St. Petersburg. And, you know, you have throughout the whole history of Russia, and this is one thing I, I, I was surprised to learn when I was doing the research, you know, so many of the things that – we think about as Soviet were actually really Russian. And we start looking at the whole history of the country, things that, you know, the gulags were being run by someone else, but they were still there. Mm -hmm. So, so much of what we think of as Soviet um, is just Russian. And, you know, St. Petersburg is such a fascinating city because you've got all this phenomenal culture. The arts are so so valued in Russia. So you've got the ballet and the symphony and the opera and theater. Um, you've got such a great tradition of writers in St. Petersburg. I mean, Dostoevsky, you know, Tolstoy in, well, he was more in the country, but, you know, the yeah. Russian culture is so great. Um, but everything below the surface is simmering in St. Petersburg at the turn of the century. And, you know, we know that... Um, Come 1917, the the whole country is going to radically shift. Now, the one thing, because I love the history and the history part, of course, in your books, and it's fascinating because it's a great you know period piece, and I love the no technology part also. But the one yeah. thing, and I just don't know because you know St. Petersburg has gone through many different name changes from Leningrad yeah. to Stalingrad to St. Petersburg. So was it called St. Petersburg back in that time? I don't I don't even know. Yeah, so it was St. Petersburg. Peter the Great founded the city. Um, he was the first czar who really traveled extensively outside of Russia. Uh, and when okay. he went to the West he, and he saw the, the big European capitals, he was very struck by how advanced those cities were. He was particularly taken with Amsterdam. And he felt that it was really, really important for Russia to have a modern to his time, uh, mm-hmm. a modern capital. And he hated Moscow. He'd always hated Moscow. So he decided to found this new city um, on the Neva River that would also give um, Russia a port um, in, in, that, in that part of the country. Mm-hmm. And he, he had this city built kind of mimicking Amsterdam. He wanted it to be like Amsterdam. So he had thousands and thousands of serfs digging canals, Tens and thousands of people died building that city. But he had it purpose-built to be his new magnificent capital. So that's why, you know, in, in, in St. Petersburg, you get all that gorgeous neoclassical architecture that you don't find throughout most of Russia. It's, right. you know, what we think of, we think of Moscow and the Kremlin and Onion Domes. And St. Yeah. Petersburg is not like, it does not look like that. But so, so you know, he names it St. Petersburg. Um, and then during the First World War, they decided Petersburg sounded too Russian. I mean, I'm sorry, too German. 
uh-huh. and they didn't they wanted it to sound more Russian, so they started calling it Petrograd. And it was Petrograd until Lenin died in what year did he die? He died in the twenties, right? Yeah, the um, 20s. And when he and when he died, then Stalin named it Leningrad. Ironically, because one thing Lenin had always said was that he wanted nothing named after him, and he didn't like sculptures and didn't want any of that. But, you know, Stalin really not let, never let anybody else's opinions stand in his way, so he changed the name to Leningrad. But so in 1900, it was still St. Petersburg. Gotcha. Okay. Cause, see, that's the... That's the exciting history about Russia because it's one of those countries that, of course, when you live in the United States, you mainly hear about the bad and the communists and all those things. But there's so much great, rich history that's within Russia that, you know, to explore outside of the governmental part, just the people and the culture and how those things Mm -hmm. are is so fascinating. So it's great backdrop for, for Lady Emily to kind of go. But so what's the mystery you kind of got surrounding her in? So what is she going to dive herself into? Well, the book opens, shockingly, with a murder. Uh, <laughs> you didn't see that coming, did you? Can't, uh, you just have her, can't you just have her go after some jewel thief? I uh, know. Well, you know, funnily enough, our jewel thief, who Sebastian Caput, right. who has been in several books, he makes another appearance here, although he's not uh-huh. exactly stealing jewels. Although with Sebastian, you never know what he's really doing. But um, what happens at the opening of the book is Emily and Colin are at the Mariansky Theater watching Swan Lake. And they notice that during an intermission, after an intermission, a, a different ballerina is substituted in for the person who is playing the lead roles, Odile and Odette, in Swan Lake. And then when they come out of the theater, the, the dancer who had originally been playing the role is dead in the snow, still in her costume, stabbed to death. And so the mystery is they are, they are trying to figure out who killed this poor ballerina. And, you know, with anything in, in Russia at that time, you have so many, there's, there's so many people who could be responsible for this because you've got not just personal relationships that can lead to murder, but there are also political things that can lead to murder. So um, the man who secretly was having an affair with the ballerina comes to Emily and says, will you please, please help me? I don't think they're really going to bother to find out who really murdered her. And then it begins. And then it begins. Then it begins. (laughs) So, because the Russian police is very interesting researching, you know, how they, how their police operated at that time. Because you've got the secret police, and again, that's like you were saying. We we think of all this political stuff and that it's communist, but you know, the secret police under the Tsar were really every well, maybe not every bit as bad as under Stalin, but they were really bad still. Yeah, they were um, really bad. But you know, when you had someone like a ballerina murdered people do care in st petersburg they care about their artists they care about their musicians their dancers their writers uh so there would have been controversy but it was just very very easy to sort of have things slide out of the way you know if they were in, mm-hmm. if there were inconvenient truths to be learned exactly i mean so besides of course you know the backdrop um, and, and, and going to Russia for the first time. 
what was something that you did? Now you're in book 12, so, you know, trying to keep the series fresh is, is something that's a challenge for you as an author. So besides the setting, what are fans going to see a little different Tasha Alexander in this book? Yeah, I mean, that's always the challenge, I think, with a long-running series. You want mm-hmm. it to stay fresh. You don't want to just, you know, have it be... Well, actually, it's an interesting balance because, you, on the one hand, you want readers to feel like they're opening the book and sitting down with old friends, but you don't want them to feel like they're reading the same story every year. So, right. you know, I have tried throughout all 12 of the books to have Emily really grow as a person, not just as a detective, but that, too. You know, she's more confident in her investigations now. At the beginning, she had... She's always going to have a hard time with, with people empowered thinking a woman shouldn't be interfering. But she is more confident in her own abilities now. So we see more of that. She is, in this book, you know, she has no problem storming into the apartment of a known revolutionary to find out if this guy's involved in the murder. You know, she's mm-hmm. willing to go, but she's not reckless. She's never reckless. And she. She has a tendency to be impulsive. That is a big thing with her. She is not patient. She is not a patient woman, and she tries, but, you know, she fails. Um, But there's a difference between being impulsive and being reckless, and she's never reckless. And I think as she, you know, ages more or less in the books, I mean, because this book is set 10 years after the first one. So, you know, we all change over the course of a decade. And she Mm -hmm. has matured into herself a bit. And, and. You know, I think as we get old, I mean older, she's still so young. It's just that the Victorian idea of old is, you know, <laughs> not our idea of old. Um, exactly. I mean, if you're a 27-year-old, you know, you're washed up So, <laughs> in, uh, in Victorian England. But, True. Um, you know, as we, as we all mature, we get to know ourselves better, and we're as aware of our our strengths and our good qualities as we are of our of our flaws and our weaknesses and you have to kind of learn how to manage those mm-hmm. so she's definitely doing a little more of that in this book you know she's very savvy she's very competent um, and she's never unwilling to rush into a, a situation that might be dangerous but she's not going to do it recklessly well, you know, the, the, you already have, when you're writing in Victoria, I mean, the, the one built-in problem for Lady Emily is she's a woman. Um, exactly. And you don't have a lot of rights back in, you know, you don't have as many rights as what men do. So the struggle, you know, that we've talked about before in, the, in these books of just being a woman is a massive struggle, you know, for her back in Victorian, and, and back in Victorian times. So for people that are kind of, you know, getting into the series and kind of reading it, you know, how have you been able to take that struggle now through the 12 books, um, you know, just from, again, just for being a woman that, that people will kind of see on her journey now as she keeps going? Yeah, absolutely. She, you know, at the beginning, in the early books, she's so young and she's got no experience of the world. And Part of the reason that I have her go to different cities and different countries throughout the series is that you, she gets to see what it is like for women in other countries. And sometimes they have it better than, than she would in England, and sometimes they have it worse. And in, in the Russia book, 
by having you know Russia you had this because you've got you've got this revolution kind of brewing in the background, you know, at the turn of the century in Russia. And one of the things that the communists were very big on was that women should be treated exactly the same as men. You know, they wanted them to have equal rights. But in Tsarist Russia, that was not certainly the case. Um, but by what, one thing I wanted to do by having the ballet dancers as characters in the book is that you see another side of how because you know there were always women who were doing different things right you get the great iconoclasts like Gertrude Bell in the Victorian era who's mapping Persia but then you also get the demimond right so you've got these ballet dancers who have quite a lot of access to the well not so much the czar when Nicholas II was czar because he actually he had had a long running affair with a ballet dancer before he got married and he did break it off apparently uh, I mean, there's no evidence to say he didn't. He broke it off after that he was engaged and was, was faithful to his wife, which is unusual for a czar um, or a ruler. But um, the ballet dancers in Russia were kind of, they were the go-to mistresses for the aristocracy. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, you know, addressed very clinically in sources from the time where they just say, hey, look, the uh, imperial doctors are making sure they don't have syphilis. So... We know they're safe, basically. And so here you have women who are are earning a living, which is unusual in this time period, but they're also kind of expected but then condemned at, for at the same time to be available for the aristocracy. And, you know, they weren't all. Some of them refused to get involved, but a lot of, you know, there were many who really – got themselves a very nice position by the time they were done dancing because of who who they were having an affair with during their career. And, you know, that's something that, you know, we're not comfortable with today, the idea that a woman has to think kind of in a cold way, okay, yeah. if I'm going to be able to keep supporting myself, what am I going to do, you know? They mm -hmm. needed a, a patron, if you will. So Emily's seeing exactly. that. And she's also seeing the Tsarina. She's seeing the not so much of the Grand Duchesses because they're, you know, everybody knows about Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia. But they're they're a not all born yet, and b very little kids. But you know the the Russian or the female Russian aristocrats, the princesses, because princesses are actually a lower rank rank in Russia than and Grand Duchess. Um, oh, you know, she, I did not know she, that. She, yeah, it's very different. So you have all these hmm. princes and princesses, and they are more like, uh, to, to, to go with the English equivalent, they're, they're kind of the regular aristocracy, whereas the Grand Dukes oh. and the Grand Duchesses, they're the royals. Um, oh. So, you know, Emily is seeing how these Russian princesses wield a very great deal of power in the society. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost... It, <laughs> It's almost sad to see in today's day and age the struggle that women still have to go through now. And I'm like, really, people? Get it's, over well, it. I mean, it's for the so love true. of God. <laughs> it's, but, yeah, like, why can we not get past that, right? <laughs> God, I don't get it. I mean, I'm sitting there, and I told Shannon a hundred times, I'm like, you know, when you look back in history and all the problems and whatnot, what's the one common denominator? Yep, it's been men. We have screwed this whole thing up. It's time for the women to say, Give it to the women and say, you guys, now, it's time for you to fix it, because we suck at this. 
Well, well, you don't Please all help fuck us. at it. <laughs> you know, men are just, I don't know. I mean, we're just terrible people. Um, well, not all of you. I think, you know, not all of you are. No, but the problem is that the ones in power are terrible people. I mean, you see yeah. it every day. <laughs> oh, it's so bad, I, but. It is. You don't even want to, I mean, it's like I, I'm every morning afraid to open the computer, you know? Yeah, we're living what, in a thriller book What today? Right yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things that you're living in a thriller book. And so the the one thing that, you know, and I always kind of find it funny, and I always find, you know, the hypocrisy in many different things, and I try to not live my life in hypocrisy, so I always try to be the same. But people always sit there and they go and they sit there and they say, hey, you know, I like to watch movies and I like to go to games and do things because I don't like to – I like to get out of the real life. I like to not do the real life. And then – Real life creeps into the books and people love it. And it's like, wait a second, you just said you don't want the real life, but you like to read the real life. It's like you make no sense. So when you write, you know, so your books can really take you out of the time that you're living in to get you into that other world, which isn't that what books are supposed to be, put you in another world? That's what I I mean, I think so. (laughs) I mean, I can just remember being a little girl and reading and thinking I can go anywhere. (laughs) I you mean, know, with the yeah, I'm sitting there thinking, and I'm like, how many freaking books now are we going to have with presidents that are going to act like the one that we have? Oh. And, you know, and, and things of that nature. And how few of them are like, we going to want to read? <laughs> yeah, it's like, and why would you want to freaking read that? You wake up and you live it. It's called CNN yeah. or MSNBC or, you know, whatever you want to watch. It's there every single day. Mm-hmm. So I always find that funny when people let those things creep into their books and into their psyche. Um you know, I find that interesting. Now, the one thing that I've and I've wanted, to, and I'm great, I'm getting ready to ask you this because the one thing, because we we have a publishing company, so we publish books, and we see right. this a lot with our authors, is they let their their lives, whether they're feeling sad or happy or whatnot, get into their, you know, some maybe some event that's happened. It's all of a sudden mm. into their it's into their books, and you see their characters, and you're like, wow, you really let your life get into your book here. Do you do you kind of separate that out from Lady Emily if you're having like a very sad time or something to that effect or a happy time or a catastrophe? Do you not let that seep into Lady Emily? I mean, are you conscious for that fact, or do you go back and read and say, "Oh, I can see why I wrote that about her because I was going through this at this time." I think. I mean, I really try to keep those two things separate, mm-hmm. especially the emotional component of it. Because Emily is not me. You know, she is so right. different from me in many ways. Um, but I will say the one conscious way that I don't do that is, I mean, for example, Emily's interested in Greek antiquities and art and classical literature. Well, I am too. And sure. That was a deliberate choice because if you're going to spend, you know, more than a decade writing about a character, you sort of would like to be interested in some of the things they're interested in so that you're not constantly having to write about something that you don't like. Right. But that to exactly. me is a very separate thing from, you know. Much different. She, her, her experiences and emotions. I don't. Yeah, I don't want that to. You know, isn't it enough to live your own life once? I don't want to have to do it twice. Really. I mean, Especially if you're having, if you're going through something difficult. You know, I don't want to write about it too. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like you go through a sad time. You know, like 
you just you know your your, your son just went off to college, and that's a very very sad time for you know for any kind of parent because you know it's the realization of growing up. And you, and right. if you're writing a book at, during that time, you could almost see that emotion going in. While all of a sudden, Lady Emily loses something close to her, and it's a, and you start seeing the correlations. And yeah. I think it's tough to try to separate the two. I think so because I think. I mean, it depends, because for some some people that probably works really well. I don't think it would yeah. for me. I think that, you know, I don't want to use my books or my writing as a way to work through my emotions, if that right. makes sense. You know, you right. have to kind of do that separately, which is not to say that your whole lifetime emotional experience isn't going to influence your work because you're you're writing about humans and emotions and you know your understanding of humanity is is formed by a lot of your own experiences but i i wouldn't want to directly kind of you know parallel my life and my work right yeah isn't that I, what memoirs just, are for <laughs> i know exactly I mean, I do. I, I just kind of I find that interesting, and, and I see those things, because I love listening to people and hearing, because I always say, and it's the old adage that I kind of do, actions speak much louder than words. I see what you say, but I see what you do. Yes, And yes. that, to me, lends a lot more than what you're saying. I mean, let's yeah. face it. Absolutely. Know. Yeah. So say as now, I do as I say, not as I do, right? <laughs> I'm sure you've and I'm sure you've been emailed this, because I know we've talked about it, so how many more emails have you gotten? Is Sebastian getting his own book? Well, not Come on yet. now. You know, how many times you had to answer that email? A lot. Everyone loves Sebastian. <laughs> Although I would say, I don't know, if may, it might be that more people love Jeremy. Really? The Bachelor Uh-oh, Duke. is this going to be Team him. Jeremy or Team Sebastian? You're going to put T-shirts out. You could, right? Do but then t-shirts. there's Colin, so, you know, everyone loves Colin. Oh. But Sebastian, I think Sebastian would be have a very fun book. He, uh... Yeah. I think he's really at some of his at his best in this book, in Death in St. Petersburg. Kind of like Catwoman in male form. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, in fact, through this book, he's decided because you know he never he never goes anywhere as himself, so he is no. pretending to be a Cossack in this book. So he's oh. always dressed as a Cossack, annoyed that they won't let him wear his giant tall hat into places because he thinks it makes him look better, but. In Russia, you know, you're not allowed really to keep your coat on inside or your hat. You, when you go to a museum or the theater, you have to check all that. Wow. So, still today. I never you understood check all that, that stuff either. I never got that. I, 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 I've never been a clothes yeah. person. I never understood, you know, the whole dress up of this and that and whatnot. I'm like, it's still the same brain. I still have I the same intelligence whether I wear a tie or whether I wear sweatpants. It doesn't change me. It's so true, but it does change the way people respond. It does. That is am- it's am- it amazes me. It's like mm-hmm. you have sweatpants and a sweatshirt on, but you have a tie and a suit on, so you must be the smart one in the room, so I'm going to listen uh-huh. to you. Yeah. And it's like, Always well, a mistake. Yeah. Always a mistake mm-hmm. to judge that way. <laughs> Which, and, you know, and what's the hypocrisy in that? What do people always say? Never judge a book by its cover, but, mm-hmm. we, ton- but we judge everybody by their freaking we- cover. Absolutely. It's like we can't get past that. Nope. Yeah. Can't. It's amazing. It is. Kind of sad. Well, I'll tell you, you know, this is the sad part of the show because now I've got to wait another freaking 12 months before you come back on to talk on the show. Of course, we got, you know, we talk, we got to talk off show, but now it's over. Just like that. I know. Well, it's over. 
Um, same time, same place, you know? Exactly. I got you booked already. <laughs> I got you booked for next year, October the Good. 10th, and, you know, well, at, I wrote at 10 the book. o'clock. The book is, I've so, written the book. My editor has it, so. Of course you've written the book, and now you're working on already 14, I'm sure. So 13's done, now 14's done. That's right. You know. That's, and, that's you know, the way it and works. That's something, that you, that's something you just said. I want every author to realize, no matter what house you're in, the book is out now, Death in St. Petersburg. Tasha has already written book 13, and it's in the editors, but you won't see that for a year. So anybody in a small publisher that when you write a book and you get it edited and you're like, oh, is it going to come out next week? Shut up. <laughs> no, it's not coming out next week. There's a lot of shit that's got to go on before that <laughs> happens. <laughs> Absolutely. There's editing, revising, copy editing, yeah. proofreading, typesetting, interior, yeah. des- interior design. These things yes. take time. <laughs> and just remember, authors, you're not the only one that they're dealing with. There's other people yeah. that have to come into the thing too. So. But, hey, yes. Tasha, it's always fabulous to talk. TashaAlexander.com is the website. And the book is called Death in St. Peter's Book, number 12 in the Lady Emily series. As soon as my reviewer is done, I get to read it. Um, so I'm very excited about that. So, if, like always, thank you so much for coming on. It has been great fun. I think I was trying to count. I think I've had you on for the last seven years, seven books. Wow. That talked about. And That's you are amazing. my longest-running well, guest in that time. <laughs> and it's just it warms me and so grateful that I'm so grateful that to be able to you know, have friends like you in this business to talk to for this long period of time. You know, even if we don't see each other all that much, it's still great to be able to have this format that we can talk to and and everything else. So I just want to thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you, because it is really an honor. It truly is an honor. I mean, you're just, I just, I look forward to this every year. And the book comes out Tuesday. So anybody who's listening, the book comes out Tuesday. Um, So have fun with your pressers, because I'm sure you're going to be, you know, hitting it hard coming up now until probably, what, like November 1st, right? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right, well, enjoy, Tasha. It's been fabulous, see? and good luck, and we will see you soon. You take care. It's great to talk to you, John. All right, bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is Tasha Alexander. The book is called Death in St. Peter's Book, number 12 in the Lady Emily series. Go to TashaAlexander.com for more information. We came up to the end, everybody. We want to thank you all for joining us. Again, subscribe to us on iTunes, suspensemagazine.com. Have a good one. Goodbye.